Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the UK in the grip of a full-blown financial crisis, with the Bank of England forced to make an emergency intervention because of a, quote, material risk to UK financial stability. This in the aftermath of Kwasi Kwarteng's financial statements on Friday, which slashed taxes for high earners and earned an unprecedented rebuke from the Washington-based International Monetary Fund, which said that the government's economic policy would undermine efforts by the Bank of England to tackle rising inflation. We'll be finding out exactly what has happened and why it matters with Tony Yates, who was at the Bank of England for 21 years and was a professor of economics at Birmingham University, and Ewan McGahey, an academic at King's College London, who also teaches at the Paris School of Economics. Before that, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our monthly newspaper, which has exclusive content that you can't read online. The great thing about the Byline Times is there is no shadowy oligarch or millionaire backer telling us what to say. We can report without fear or favour because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So if you can, please subscribe to the Byline Times. You get more details over at our website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. So Tony Yates and Ewan McGahey, welcome both. Uh, Tony, can you uh, attempt to sum up what has happened and how we got here? Okay, how do we get here? So Friday last week, Kwasi Kwarteng, the new chancellor, announced what I think they themselves called a dash for growth. The UK economy has pretty much stagnated since 2010, which is extraordinary in the modern era. And they went for a strategy which takes the view that if you cut taxes and deregulate the economy, then that will boost economic activity permanently and possibly even boost the long run rate of growth of economic activity. And even if you have cut taxes, the tax rates, the proportion of each pound that we earn that the government takes, there'll be so many more pounds created that tax revenues will rise and compensate. The difficulty with this strategy is that there is no evidence, really, that it works. And so for that reason, no one believed it would work when they heard it, including amongst that no one is uh, all the people in financial markets, who, amongst other things, are the people that decide whether or not to lend to the government by buying its bonds. So that was the trigger. But one of the problems with it as well was that if it was to work by effectively giving, in most cases anyway, wealthier people more money, that would release more money into the system. Is that right? And that could tend to encourage inflation. And that's the very thing that the Bank of England is charged with controlling and inflation is high at the moment. So there was kind of a fundamental conflict as well, isn't there, in the heart of government policy between it and the Bank of England, which acts independently. Well, let's separate two things. So firstly, is the government's view that tax cuts and these planning and other regulatory reforms make the economy work better. If that were true, then us going to work and doing our normal things would just generate more income per head. We'd all feel richer. If that were the only thing that were going on and it were to happen instantaneously, there wouldn't actually be a conflict between what the government are doing and what the Bank of England are charged with doing. Because although there'll be more demand, we'd want more things, we'd have a bigger productive potential to supply it. So there wouldn't be a conflict. The trouble is there is a conflict because the plan doesn't work. Not only in the short term does it not work, but it doesn't work in the long term. So the plan is that you effectively generate more growth in the economy and that helps you to to cover the reduced amount of money going into central government via taxation. But if you don't have growth in the economy or until you have growth in the economy, you can only fund those tax cuts, presumably through extra borrowing. That's right. It's the extra borrowing that is worrying financial markets. We should put this in perspective. So although the fiscal strategy is really crazy, we're not talking about a huge amount of borrowing. So it's 50 billion pounds, which is a lot. You know, that's 50 hospitals. But 
in the grand scheme of things, it's survivable. The reason why it's survivable is it probably isn't going to be indefinite. So although the government thinks it's going to be indefinite, it won't be. Why won't it be? Because something is going to happen. It's very, the measures are very unpopular. Uh, there's been a big tilt in the polls towards Labour, where they're already in a fairly favourable position. The noises Labour have made about the plan make them sound fairly conventional as regards whether or not you borrow to finance current spending or not. They say that they're against it. And so if you're a, uh, in financial markets, you would bet that this is not going to go on indefinitely and that pro probably two years is the maximum. And two years of borrowing £50 billion you shouldn't be borrowing is survivable. So you think that is survival? It's a survivable figure. Why then is it provoked what appears to be a full-blown financial crisis? Well, this is where it gets tricky. And, um, you know, to be perfectly honest, the, f the pace of events and the kind of intricacy of institutions and the markets that are provoking it are something I still haven't really got to grips with. But, you know, basically, as well as initially provoking the idea that the bank is going to have to tighten interest rates more than they would have done otherwise, some problems have opened up in the market for longer dated government bonds. And this is to do with how pension funds finance themselves. I can attempt to go through it if you want. It's yeah, please, if you do. And I appreciate it. It's difficult to translate some of this into layman's terms, as it were. But this is the bit, I suppose, where it really matters, isn't it? Because it affects people's pensions. But in, in so doing, it also potentially affects the well-being of the entire financial market. I mean, there's talk of contagion, which suggests that if this is not controlled now, it could impact the wider economy. So I appreciate it's not necessarily the, the easiest thing to break down, but I'd, I'd love to, to hear you grapple with it. Yeah, well, I'll have a go. And I'll be perfectly honest, I don't really fully understand it yet. So it's sort of a peculiar. We we'll have to treat this as like a talk amongst colleagues, like I would when I was at the bank, rather than me attempting to give a seminar on it. But basically, pension funds are sat on gigantic uh, pots of money that people have given them, uh, which they invest. And in return, the promise is that they pay out pretty much a fixed amount of money you know, when the person retires until they die. So they have these obligations or liabilities which are highly unvariable. And they have to figure out how to invest the money so that they can meet those obligations. So one way to do it is to invest really, really, really conservatively in something that itself is highly unvariable in its value. But if you do that, it's very expensive and you can't make much of a turn yourself as a provider of pensions. So they don't do that. And what they do is they hope to be a bit smarter and invest the money more profitably, not only for themselves, but also for the, the pension recipient who would pay the costs if they didn't do that. But doing that exposes them to risk in terms of how much money they have on hand at any point in time to pay out the pensions. And this is where it starts to get hard. So that is a risk that they then have to borrow money to put themselves in a position to make sure that they're always there to meet their fixed obligations. So it sounds a bit weird that even though they're sat on a gigantic pot of our money, um, speaking as someone who's got, you know, who will hopefully get a pension in a horribly soon amount of time, that at the same time as having that big pot of money that they also have to borrow to do this kind of cash flow management. Now, in order to be able to do that borrowing, they have to post collateral. So this is sort of money that the lender can take away in case the pension fund defaults in some way. Weird to think that they ever could, but, you know, it's not impossible. So they post collateral. And what do they post as collateral? Partly these same bonds that whose price we're talking about. Anyway, what happened is because of the um, concern about the government's financial plans, the price of these medium long term government bonds started to fall a bit. And that meant that the lenders who were lending pension funds money to do their liquidity management uh, wanted the pension funds to top up this collateral. And the only way they can do that is by selling some of the bonds in the first place whose price has fallen. The act of all of the pension funds, or many of them doing this, then depresses the price even further. And there's a risk that you set in play a kind of vicious circle. And so it's that that's prompted the worry that even though, in a fundamental sense, the pension funds are solvent, they're sat on these gigantic pots of assets, that they could get into great difficulty 
Uh, and that's why the uh, Financial Policy Committee of the Bank of England have said that uh, the bank will step in and do some buying of these bonds itself to prop up the price and you know, provide a floor to the price and stop this vicious cycle. Yes, so uh, that's fascinating, Tony, and I, I've understood that better from that explanation than I've understood it at any point until this moment. So let me just break that down again, though. So uh, government bonds are financial institutions lending money to the government. In the UK, those bonds are known as gilts, but effectively they're the same thing, I'm right in thinking. And they lend money to the government and the government, so the government can do its day-to-day business. And the government promises to pay them back the money at the end of a fixed agreed period. And in the meantime, it will give them a certain rate of interest in return for having lent the money. Is that right? That's what a bond is. Kind of. I mean, I wouldn't think of a bond as an institution. It's just basically an IOU. So there, yeah. there are lots of pension funds, very rich individuals, foreign sovereign wealth funds, foreign rich individuals, foreign pension funds. All of these people want to find a place to put their money. And one place they can put it is by buying a, an IOU issued by the UK government. And these IOUs, they take many forms, but the most simplest form to think about that doesn't do too much injury to the basic economics of it is it's an IOU that says, right, in 10 years' time, this entitles you to £100. How much will you give me for that? And uh, the interest happens by the uh, investor basically paying less than the face value. So there's a discount on it. That's not always the way it works. Sometimes, you know, you pay a particular amount and there's a, uh, what's called an interest coupon. And sometimes it's more complicated than that still. And then there are differences between bonds. Some of them have the face value indexed to the price level in the country and some of them don't. But essentially then the pension funds buy these bonds as collateral for the the money that they need to use on a more short-term basis. But if there is no confidence to the people who are lending to them that the bonds will be repaid in the end then there's a sell-off of those bonds and then there are too many of those bonds in the market and their value declines yes sort of um <laughs> yeah i'll tr- let, let try let, let, yeah. let, me, let me try again I mean, um so the pension it's weird that pension funds should get get into difficulty it's a weird economic idea because yeah. they are sat on the the most colossal sums of money you can possibly imagine hundreds of billions of pounds uh, sometimes you know greater than that sometimes a lot smaller so what you know it's weird to think that they could ever get into difficulty and not have money because they are sat on huge pots of money but what they're doing is they're investing those pots of money which means they don't immediately have access to it but they're investing them in order to get a return to pay the pensioners what they need to pay the pensioners is usually defined to be fairly fixed in advance you know, mine, mine is, it'd be highly predictable what they have to pay me. What's not predictable is, you know, how long I'll be alive to to draw the pension. I'm going to do my best to, you know, stick around for as long as possible. And the, the pension provider has to make an actuarial judgment about that. But the bit they don't need to make a judgment about is how much per year I will take from them. Now, they could just invest in something that pays that amount that they owe me. But if they did that, you know, the, it would be really, really expensive to do it. They wouldn't make much money themselves and there wouldn't be much point. So what they do is they try and invest in you know, more higher yielding investments. But in doing that, they expose themselves then to not having enough money in any particular month or week or year to pay the fixed amount that the pensioners who they are obligated to want. So what they do to combat that is not get conservative about their investments, but they, they borrow money or that, you know, they, they get into contracts with people who, who essentially are going to be lenders who come on stream and give them money if they happen to be short of it at any particular time. But those lenders want collateral. Um, they want something that if the, the pension fund goes bust, for example, in extremists, they can take away and make themselves good with. Now, the, the, the trouble is that what what happened is that the you know the government's fiscal mismanagement and loss of confidence in the government's sort of rationality basic rationality of a fiscal policy meant that their 
pension funds needed to post more collateral and it needed to top it up. And the way they had to do that was sell something that they could sell very quickly, namely government bonds, and top up with the lenders by you know giving them cash basically. And it's the it's the process of them liquidating those government bonds that drove their price down even further. The trouble is that then starts off a second round of uh, of selling, and it's that's why the bank had to step in to try and stop it. Mm. And uh, you and McGahey, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's fascinating to hear from from Tony. Really trying to take that through in fine detail, Ewan. And what is the risk of contagion then if if this issue isn't dealt with, Ewan? Where does it end? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, the, the, the straightforward answer is that there could be no end. We could see a spiral in higher energy costs, uh, higher food costs, uh, everything that's imported, all consumer goods having rising prices. Uh, as the Bank of England raises interest rates in order to try and contain inflation, that will put up uh, double, triple uh, mortgage repayment costs. That will have a knock-on effect to rents. Uh, so the risk of contagion, I mean, it's not a risk, it's its already a reality. Um, it, it, it could be unlimited. Um, if I could perhaps uh, just rewind, I really uh, appreciate the explanation that Tony's given, but uh, just, just to sort of go from the start, I mean, the, the way that we got here is on Friday, two main things. Tax cuts were announced by the government for people owning, uh, earning over £150,000 plus, raising the limit on bankers' bonuses. And then the second thing uh, is that how are these tax cuts going to be funded? Um, that there are others, of course, but how are these ones going to be funded? Well, the main thing that the government said is we're going to borrow, um, and it was said about £70 billion on, on Friday. We're going to borrow all this money from the international markets. Uh, but so the reason that the pound crashed is because the, the international market said, oh, no, uh, if you're going to try and borrow from us, we're going to put up uh, the interest rates uh, at which you have to pay us for borrowing. So, so that's the, uh, the yield on the gilts. And, and so now, while the government predicted seventy billion uh, ish is what it was going to cost on Friday, uh, it's gone up by twenty, thirty, uh, forty billion, and, and uh, could go ever higher. So the idea that we could borrow our way to growth through tax cuts—I mean, remember Kwasi Kwarteng's plan is is called the growth plan—it um, is just absolute fantasy. What you've got to do is you've got to invest for growth. Uh, and the easy way that you can do that is what the UN Secretary General has been calling for, uh, which is a windfall tax on companies like BP and Shell that are making massive profits while British households pay, uh, well, it's currently capped at £2,500 on average per household. Uh, and remember, uh, a bit more than a year ago, the average energy bills per household were £1,000. Um, so the government doesn't, it's not only that they don't have a growth plan, they've got no plan at all. It's going to plunge Britain into a new era of poverty worse than austerity, uh, and perhaps even worse than Thatcher in the 80s. And those of us who lived through that time will know how stark a warning that is. So when the government says it's going to fund these tax cuts in the short term by borrowing, it goes to the international money markets. Yes. And so we want to borrow money for this purpose and the international money markets although they're all independent but they take a collective view that they're not going to get a decent rate of return on that although they can't trust the outcome of this this gamble of tax cutting so they say okay we'll lend you the money but it's going to come at this price, which is a higher price than the government had anticipated. And the only way the government can effectively pay that back is if we all as taxpayers end up paying more. Exactly. The international markets are saying, you, Britain, have to pay us more if you want us to lend you money. And, and, and when we're talking about international markets, we're talking about American, German, or also British banks um, lending money uh, to uh, the government, or, or it could be, you know, big institutional investors, asset managers buying uh, gilts. It could be a whole range of investors, uh, and, and so the market price of government borrowing has gone up massively uh, because nobody thinks uh, that cutting taxes, especially for people over one hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year, is going to spur uh, investment. 
Now, the, the reality, I think, uh, is if you cut taxes for the very rich, uh, people earning over £150,000, I suppose Kwasi Kwarteng thinks, oh, well, they're going to invest loads of money in uh, new companies and new businesses in the UK, and we're going to get growth in the economy. Uh, no, the reality is that uh, people uh, who are very rich and have their taxes cut are going to hold on to that money. They're going to hoard the cash. Uh, they're not going to invest. Uh, and if they do invest, uh, it'll be through a chain of financial institutions that have big transaction costs. And so it's a really, really bad way uh, to get money into innovation and investment in the new clean green economy that we need. I mean, this is sort of uh, the general theory of uh, employment uh, and money from John Maynard Keynes in the 1930s. If you uh, have tax cuts for the rich, then it's going to lead to hoarding of capital. Uh, and the best way to boost aggregate demand, the best way to boost investment, is to put money in the pockets of working families. Um, so really, you want to be cutting taxes for the poor uh, and people who are working the most, not cutting taxes for the rich. But the main thing that we need uh, is that we need government to have a proactive fiscal policy. Uh, you, you know, Kwasi uh, Kwarteng and Liz Truss wrote a book called Britannia Unchained uh, about a decade ago, and they said, that the British uh, are among the worst idlers uh, in the world. Uh, but the reality is that this government, with Truss and Kwarteng, is the most idling government that we've got in the world. They think that they can do absolutely nothing, just cut taxes and then let the market work some magic, instead of doing the hard work of having a positive industrial strategy uh, to get British investment going. Uh, Tony, the ideology that has been outlined there by Ewan is, I think it's fair to say, not the the orthodox one. I think you both re reflect, I suppose, the, the orthodox economics. The, the one time in history that I've seen the Truss and Kwarteng method, as it were, was tried was under Ronald Reagan in the United States in the 1980s. That's when taxes were cut in, and in a similar time to this, but economists generally reckon that was not seen as a as an economic success. Yeah, I think uh, that's very fair. Um, and we there aren't really any examples where, that we can find. I think that this works. And another way to look at it is if you could ask yourself the question: Is there is there evidence that at different sizes of the state, i.e. how much the uh, government's taking taxes and how much they spend on our behalf. Can you correlate that well with either the, the growth rate of um, GDP per head or even the level of the GDP per head? And at, at extreme rates, you can. I mean, if the government tried to take uh, all the money and spend it on our behalf and we had sort of perfect socialism, then, you know, so far we, what we've seen is that that works incredibly badly. If you look at mo differences between moderate rates, say between you know thirty-five and sixty-five, there probably isn't much correlation. So there's no guarantee. There's no. You, know, you can't be confident that this will work. Indeed, I would say it won't work. And I think financial markets agree with me. Uh, and Tony, you've got long experience working for the Bank of England. You were there for more than two decades. Within the Bank of England, given that you're articulating economic orthodoxy and this plan goes so far against that, what would the thinking within the Bank of England have been when Kwasi Kwarteng made his statement? They'd have been very surprised and thought, right, well, we have to raise rates and that's going to cause some pain. So to make sure that, roughly speaking, um, the path of demand in the economy wasn't different than the extra demand that that's created by the government giving tax cuts for top earners has to be compensated by reducing the demand of people further down the tree and that's done by pushing up mortgage rates yeah and the bank of england wants to take demand out of the economy because it has the job of controlling inflation but is there not then an in, an inherent conflict between the bank of england and the government's economic policy. It's hard to know what is actually in the, the government's head. I think the government thinks, if we take them at their word, that by some miracle, the amount that the economy can supply will suddenly increase. And therefore, 
if you put more resources, give more resources back to people by not taking their ta- not taking as many in taxes, the economy will be able to supply it, and therefore there won't be any extra inflationary pressure. But you know, no one believes that that's the case. In which case, there is there is a conflict, and the bank has to step in. And it, it said it, it's pretty much said it will, and uh, that's what financial markets think they're going to do. Mm. Uh, and what do you make of that? Because it, it, it just strikes me that, you know, if, if the government is seeking to unleash this extra money, I mean, you've described it as, I suppose, magical thinking, but it, if it works in theory and this extra money is unleashed by reducing the tax primarily of higher earners, though, of course, the average uh, person will also pay slightly less income tax. Uh, but if, if the idea is to re- unleash this additional money supply, uh, it just seems to me inherently the Bank of England is 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 going to have to do something about that, given its fundamental job. Well, that's uh, a very good question about what the fundamental job of the Bank of England really is. Uh, look, I think a really good analogy that's been put around in the last few days is that the Bank of England is trying to contain inflation, you know, put a break on the economy uh, by its, its open market operations by r- raising interest rates. So Bank of England has a, a break on the economy while the Treasury is trying to go hard down with its foot on the accelerator by doing uh, tax cuts. Uh, you're absolutely right. There's tax cuts for people earning over £150,000. Those are the biggest ones. But there's also a 1% cut to the basic rate of income tax and the planned rise to national insurance won't happen. Uh, so we can, uh, I think, in, endorse and, and say that tax cuts for working people could be a very good thing. However, for, for the richest, uh, it certainly is uh, going to drive uh, inflation. Um, so you've got a Treasury and a Bank of England completely at odds. Uh, but what's the mandate of the Bank of England? Well, uh, their mandate is to support the government's economic policy, but first uh, it's meant to try and achieve uh, stable inflation and it's, it's also got uh, a role in trying to get towards full employment. So the, the Treasury, on the other hand, is, is talking about growth. Uh, but what is it that it wants growth in? So the the standard definition of growth is for gross domestic product. Uh, And that adds up, you know, all the uh, contracts, all the transactions uh, in the economy. The problem is uh, that growth in some things like corporate profits for oil companies can be really bad for society, while growth in other things that contribute to higher GDP, like growth in real wages, can be really good. Um, And the the government, when it talks about growth, doesn't really have any clear sense about what it really wants to achieve. It just wants GDP to go up no matter what. Uh, And that can be devastating for society. Uh, We can have massive oil company profits, as is happening now, uh, and that will contribute to a much higher GDP. Uh, And meanwhile, our planet is going into an ever-worsening climate crisis and British families are getting poorer. So uh, that's a really important point. In that sense, I mean, GDP is just a a very crude measurement of economic well-being and and of social well-being. And uh, as you say, in some circumstances, a growing GDP can be harmful, never mind the climate change, although I acknowledge how hugely significant that is, if... If the oil price is going up and that makes the GDP grow, nevertheless, rising oil price is very difficult for for many families and indeed for many businesses. Exactly. I mean, so just to give you another example, we could privatise the National Health Service and pay loads more for health insurance like in America, and we would see a rise in GDP. So uh, it's not just that GDP is ambiguous. GDP can, with bad government policy, be actively harmful. Uh, and, and the Kwarteng growth plan just doesn't say what it wants. I mean, what we should want is real wage rises for British workers who have seen their wages stagnate since uh, the financial crisis, the banker crisis in 2008, uh, and through uh, from the Conservative government uh, in 2010. What we should see is we should see rising life expectancy from better health care. We want a cleaner environment. I mean, these are all the metrics that we want to have growth in. But the growth plan from the government funded through the sort of fantasy idea that tax cuts are going to lead to more investment is just not working. And so 
I, I think also there's a political dimension that we should just add quickly. Um, Parliament can stop this. Uh, all that has to happen is that Conservative members of Parliament have to take responsibility and say, uh, we don't think, like the international markets have said, like the IMF has said, uh, that this is going to work. So we're not going to have tax cuts. And we need to think again about how we're going to fund the enormous growth in energy bills or, or to, to make up the cost for British households. Uh, and that would lead us to a windfall tax on companies like BP and Shell. Problem is, Liz Truss used to work for Shell and uh, got £1.5 million in Conservative Party donations till uh, 2021, uh, and also took £100,000 from a BP executive's wife for her leadership campaign. So if we're wondering why they haven't done a windfall tax yet on BP and Shell, well, that might uh, explain something. <laughs> oh, oh, you cynic, you and you cynic. Um, uh, Tony, I've heard people like John Redwood have been doing the rounds in the absence of any government ministers, by the way, to defend the Kwarteng and Trust uh, policy. But one of the quotes is, well, wait till November and then you'll see how all this is going to be funded. Now, never mind the fact that Trust had many, many weeks during the, the hiatus between her taking power and Johnson effectively stop stopping being prime minister but the reason the statement last friday was a financial statement rather than a budget many observers believe was to avoid scrutiny by the office of budget responsibility now that would have opened up the figures to debate and discussion with civil servants and it would at least have given us a means by which we could assess the likelihood of success of their policy. So if they're complaining that the markets have been unreasonably spooked or that it's not fair for economists like you to be picking holes in their policy, in a sense, they only have themselves to blame, don't they? Because this was a political choice to have a financial statement rather than a budget and therefore to evade scrutiny by the OBR. I think that's fair. I wouldn't want to over-egg the contribution that the OBR's absence or lack of scrutiny is made to it because, you know, the OBR is just, you know, a bunch of people like me um, who are going to look at it and say, well, that's not going to work. And everybody knows that that's what they're going to say. So them not actually saying it isn't really a huge part of the problem. The fact that they were elbowed to one side and won't, won't be commenting yet until November contributes to the overall sense that the government is, you know, departing from institutional norms and you know not behaving in a rational way but what the OBR is going to say we know pretty much anyway you know it's a bunch of middle-aged men who are going to draw some lines of which, de which depicts what will happen to the potential output of the economy and I can tell you where those lines are going to be and they're not going to be lines that will be affected by the tax cuts or the deregulatory plans very much uh, so that will not really be news I, I think the, the artifice of the November medium-term financial plan is i'm trying to think of a polite way to say it isn't doesn't involve swearing it's not something anyone would, should really take seriously they are not in the between now and november going to come up with a set of reasons or any evidence that will convince anybody that it is going to work in the sense of improving the productive potential of the economy they might use that time to backtrack on the, the, the commitment so far not to cut spending much so that, that may be one way that they choose to resolve this and to calm the concerns in financial markets. If they do that, it will be uh, it'll aggravate the problem they've got politically because those spending cuts won't be popular because you know the public services that will take the hit are already under considerable strain. Uh, if I could just add, Adrian, um, the, the OBR was set up under the Budget Responsibility and National Audit Act of 2011. Uh, and the idea was that after the global financial crisis, uh, that government should be more responsible with uh, its spending. And, and, and this was, you know, part of the conservative and liberal Democrat government myth uh, that Labour's public spending had uh, brought Britain to the crash when, of course, it was caused by global banks spending too much uh, on subprime mortgage debt and uh, and the banks crashing the economy. But the, the, the 
2011 Act set up the OBR to make uh, governments more responsible in the future. And uh, absolutely right, quasi quarting by doing a mini budget rather than waiting for the main budget uh, has avoided any report. Uh, it's, it's a very cynical move. Um, I, I think it, it probably would have put a lot of public pressure to change course before any action was taken. Uh, and that would have stopped the pound crashing on Friday. You and we have to assume the best motives for people, I generally find in life, until we know otherwise. And Liz Truss and Quasi Kwarteng clearly believe that this is the right economic policy for our country. And uh, albeit with the very strange way in which democracy works in our country, whereby Liz Truss can effectively be elected Prime Minister by 180,000 members of the Conservative Party. But if, if they believe that this is the best thing for our economy, and they are democratically elected politicians, should they not be allowed to see if that works? Can I come in? Yeah. I think you, there have been two major crises. Uh, one was obviously COVID, and now we have this uh, financial crisis. In the height of the COVID pandemic, the government did an absolutely crazy manoeuvre, which was to rip the country out of the single market customs union in January, in the midst of COVID, when companies were actually struggling to survive and they completely turned over their markets. This so much reminds me of that in the sense that we're in another crisis. And I think you have to look at what fundamentally is behind all this. And it is really a right-wing reset of the economy where they want to go for low tax, uh, deregulation, low worker rights. And it's like almost a obsession that they've got to do it. That this means- is listener, Peter. I, when, when you butted in, Peter, and said, can I join in? I, I thought you were Ewan, who I was inviting to speak. Uh, right. You've made a fair point. That's okay. Um, it's just so similar to yeah. what happened in January 21. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, you've made that point. What What about that, um, Ewan? I mean, Peter, you know, essentially, effectively saying this is a right wing reset of the economy in a democracy, however unpleasant and difficult people may find it. Governments are entitled to reset the economy, just yeah. as electors are entitled to kick them out at the next election if they see fit. The great irony is that somebody like Kwarteng and, uh, you know, Truss after she changed her mind and went from Remain to Leave, wanted Brexit supposedly so that we could have a a, a great British sovereign nation that could do what it wanted uh, without any pressure from the European Union. Uh, And what they found over the last four days is that when you're an isolated island, a country of uh, 65-ish million people uh, on its own in a massive planet uh, with massive international bond markets, that you don't have very much bargaining power in a small nation state like our own, which it is now not part of the EU bloc, um, has very little power to ignore uh, what the international bond markets are saying. Uh, So, you know, they might have wanted to reset and have Brexit Britain go off into a golden sunset of of growth. And, And what they found within four days of trying to fulfill their ideals, um, is that nobody's having it because they don't believe you can cut your way to growth. I think that you're right in in, in your first question, Adrian. You know, I think we should assume the best motives. And I I don't think that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng wanted the pound to crash on Friday. I don't think that that's what they set out to do. And they're not setting out to make Britain poorer. Uh, The problem is that they're steeped in ideology. Kwasi Kwarteng, from his background, learning a very narrow set of economic ideals, an ideology that went throughout his subject that he's tried to bring into government that you can cut your way to growth. Liz Truss and all the financial backers of the Conservative Party of her leadership campaign, you know, they probably think that they're trying to do the best for Britain, but how can they ignore what their financial backers are telling them should be done? And it's all coming down like a house of cards around them as we speak. Um, And and so, yeah, I think that they've got a, a mandate to test 
uh, out ideas, but not outside of the conservative manifesto that they were elected upon. There was nothing in the 2019 manifesto that gave this government and this prime minister and this chancellor the mandate to borrow unlimited amounts of money, crash the pound, making energy prices soar uh, and make mortgages go through the roof. Absolutely no mandate whatsoever. Yeah, that'd be a strange thing to put in the manifesto, wouldn't it? Yes. <laughs> We're going to make mortgages go through the roof. But I, I laugh at even recognising how serious this is. But of, of course, one of the the motivations for some of the tax cuts, not least around stamp duty, was to get the house market going again, this kind of sacred cow of conservative ideology, not just Truss and Quarteng, but this sacred cow of conservative ideology generally to get the house market moving. But the house market ain't going to be moving, well, certainly not in an upward direction, if interest rates are going through the roof. And that's likely, isn't it, to be the consequence of all this mess? Yeah, I mean, house prices, I think just the uh, reports, uh, articles in the papers today are saying house prices are likely to fall by 10%. And, and of course, that would be the natural result of uh, in increased borrowing costs because uh, fewer people will be able to afford the interest rate repayments. So it's, it's funny, I mean, house prices might fall and you might think, oh, well, that's good for home ownership. Uh, but if bank interest rates are going up, then nobody can afford to e even uh, get get a bank loan in the first place. Um, so it's, it's a really bad state. Uh, but, you know, to give some optimism, again, uh, this can all be changed because Parliament can stop the plans going through. Uh, we could have a windfall tax, uh, not just at 25%, which has already been done, but 100% of the polluters' profits at BP and Shell and other oil companies to pay for the higher cost of energy. Uh, we could reverse the uh, tax cuts for the rich. Uh, and we could do things like set up a great British energy company to have 100% clean energy uh, as fast as technology allows. Which is Keir Starmer's uh, big proposal from the Labour Party conference. Well, to, to be fair, it's been proposed by a lot of people, mm. uh, but before Labour has, uh, has adopted it. I mean, uh, everybody can see that, uh, you know, uh, give you an example. A Danish company called Orsted uh, used to be a big oil and gas major, um, and it converted into 100% clean energy over the space of roughly 10 years. Um, roughly half our energy in the UK actually comes from other governments. It's publicly owned. It's just not owned by British governments. And we could go on and on. I mean, out of the energy companies, the big four, one of them's France, uh, EDF, which has just been fully nationalized by Macron. Uh, and, and it stands to reason that, you know, if we want investment in clean energy, uh, you're not always going to get it just from the private sector acting alone. You need public investment to crowd in private investment too. Uh, and, and the best way that we can do that is, yes, set up something like Great British Energy. Tony, what do you think the way out of this is? Uh, well, it's a big question. <laughs> I'm giving you the chance to uh, to write the future of the British economy here, or at least for the next few months. I mean, the first thing that has to happen is the uh, fiscal plan has to be undone. Um, and even if you are, even if we abstract from one's own politics, uh, it, it would seem to be disastrous to, to undo it by cutting government spending. So you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't have done what they did. You know. To the redistribution towards rich people funded indefinitely by borrowing not a good plan then then you have to ask yourself well you know, you know what, what should we do instead uh don't know where to start really but the, the nhs is a good place to start which is perpetual crisis now um since covid with excess mortality i think running at something like possibly 500 people per week not just dying of covid but dying of um through neglect of other conditions that you know would normally have been treated earlier and now and now are not, and also through because of the strain placed on the accident and emergency system, you know the length of time it takes people to get get from where they've um, got into distress or collapsed in you know into treatment, um, and as well something that's not only uh, causing a lot of suffering but is of huge macroeconomic significance is the amount of people disabled by long COVID, you know, post-viral fatigue and mental incapacity, which is not something we have a solution for, but I think ought to be, you know, part of a post-COVID uh, crisis plan, you know, because if, if that pays off, 
and it may not do, but you know, if we were to put serious resources into it, then there are probably a few hundred thousand people who were working but now can't work who could get back into work, and you know, that would do something to boost the supply side of the economy to you know to 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 bring some of the government's words back into it. What we should do about energy, I mean, I could spend, you know, one could spend a whole podcast talking about that. I think, yeah. Well, no, no, I was just talking about how we how we kind of get out of this particular uh, predicament at the time. And uh, you and I suppose that the fear is that, uh, <coughs> along with this massive borrowing for which we are all going to have to pay in the long run through our taxes, that there are going to be significant cuts to public services. You know that we have some kind of return to austerity and i've reported on the violent times podcast before about various features of austerity but one of the most obvious ones and it touches on what tony has just said is the increase in health inequality so if we're gonna pay for this through cuts to public spending the implications for that of that can be pretty significant uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and of course, let, let's just remember for a sec that the government wants to pay for the borrowing uh, through growth and therefore higher tax receipts. And what they've seen very, very quickly is that there's not going to be uh, any growth. On the contrary, we've got a crisis uh, and that's going to mean lower tax receipts. And uh, yes, it, it could be uh, austerity on steroids uh, if this government is allowed to stay in control. Uh, and the reality is that they probably won't be. I mean, uh, Parliament is not crazy. Uh, and uh, Liz Truss has already been so divisive through the leadership campaign uh, that there's a, quite a light, high likelihood that even uh, a small enough group of Conservative MPs to just could just hit the margin to make sure that none of these plans go through. And, and then confidence can be restored. And uh, I suppose there's uh, a general election in November 2024 uh, at the latest. Uh, but a lot can happen between now and then. Um, it, it's really simple. Uh, other countries aren't going through the same thing. Uh, what we need is a reversal of the tax uh, cut announcements for the very rich. Uh, we need investment in a new clean green energy company. Uh, and we need to finance it through windfall profits tax on BP and Shell, uh, which have been destroying our ecosphere and should be paying. I mean, so polluters should be not profiting, but paying for the damage that they cause. Bring in uh, Peter, because Peter, I, I cut you off in your prime. Uh, you, you, you made an interesting point about the rightward drift of government. What else did you want to say, Peter? Just looking at the whole thing, I think it is a, a big ERG plan, which was obviously they uh, desperately tried to keep on to Johnson. And when that looked that it wasn't going to happen, their plan B was trust. Sunak obviously refused tax cuts. He actually said, well, you know, I'll do tax cuts when it's prudent to do so. But trust has kind of put her whole election on the basis that she will um, cut taxes immediately. Um, and you know, any benefit from tax cuts um, are going to be long-term. They're not going to be, uh, businesses aren't going to set up because, uh, you know, wealthy people have suddenly got a lot of money to go and splash in uh, lap dance clubs or um, on a Ferrari. Yeah. Well, thanks, Peter. And by the way, Peter referred to the ERG. I'm sure many listeners will know. For those of you who don't know, he's referring to the European Research Group, a group of Eurosceptic backbench Tory MPs, people like Jacob Rees-Mogg. Let's bring in uh, David Henry. Hello, David. Hello again. Thanks very much. Um, okay. I was I was at a, a meeting last night with Sir Malcolm Rifkin and some other senior Tories in Edinburgh where it's quite clear, and I, I won't uh, divulge what was actually said by any individual person, but there is real fear about what has happened to the Conservative Party. Uh, and I happen to mention that I don't believe the people that are in control of the government are actually really Conservatives at all, because these are not Conservative policies. And that was confirmed, that they fear that they have been infiltrated by the types from UKIP, and that this is some mad dash by right-wing extremists and they don't care if the UK economy is crashed because people are making money out of this. Um, so I heard you say we should give um, 
benefit of the doubt to people's intentions, I don't think we should. I think we should call it out for what we see, which is that either we're dealing with a prime minister and a chancellor that don't actually have a clue what they're doing and are not equipped to be in those positions, or they're there doing someone else's bidding. I think my point, David, was that you should give people the benefit of the doubt unless you have reason <laughs> to believe otherwise or evidence uh, to believe otherwise. And, well, and that, yes. that's, that's the question for our two economists. Right? I suppose that's, but you've pointed it up very well because it's, you know, are these guys uh, doing somebody else's dirty work, which is what you're implying, or, or are they, you know, are they just so driven by this right-wing ideology, this kind of libertarian economic idea that they simply do not understand what they're doing. There is a third option, of course, which is that this is a wonderful prescription for the British economy and they will be vindicated in time. That is the third option. We have to open up that possibility as well. But what about that, Tony, then? Uh, You know, are these people, do you think, doing somebody else's dirty work or, or are, they, are they just misguided woefully misguided given that you you disagree with the thrust of their policy i doubt very much that there is some sort of nefarious conspiracy going on to do it to you know generate money for their sponsors or supporters yeah, yeah. And there was I think thing, wasn't there about all the people who had made money out of shorting the pound, you know, the suggestion that people might have been tipped off. And I know that a Labour MP has called for an inquiry into that. But my understanding is that there were people who would have also bet on the pound increasing in value, who lost money. You know, that that's the way the markets work. People take bets on both sides and there are winners and losers. They are stupid in some ways, but, you know, they're te- they have certain talents and determination. And that's why they got to the top of uh, politics and they want to leave their mark and they have a particular view about how the world works, how economies work, and how to make them work better. It just happens to be total rubbish, and we are the victims of that. Tony, thank you. Uh, Ewan, did you want to have a final word, a final thought on that? Thank you, David, by the way. Ewan, go on. Just to say uh, uh, the Parliament can stop it. Uh, we can have a windfall tax on big energy companies. And if the government completely changes course, uh, the markets will have uh, restored uh, confidence. At that point, though, surely we have to have a general election. I, mean, if, uh, I think that might be a good idea. <laughs> if an incoming government cannot sell to its own parliament, in which it has an 80-seat majority, a new economic policy, then yeah, maybe maybe the time has come for a change. Uh, I'll leave that to you, dear voter. Uh, Ewan, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you for joining in for your first Twitter Spaces, your first Byline Radio. It won't be the last. Thank you. Likewise Thanks. to Tony Yates. Uh, thank you, Tony. Great to speak thank to you. Thank you. Uh, And if you've enjoyed this, just let me remind you that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. It's a brilliant monthly newspaper. It has content in the uh, newspaper edition that you can't get online. You can't get through our website as well. So it's well worth investing in. And it has the pick of the Byline Times online articles too. So check out subscriptions. They start from as little as £3 a month. Go to bylinetimes.com for more details. That's at bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon. Bye now.